invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And I know we were, we were a little front-loaded today, um, so we'll cut some things at the back. So if you're looking at your watch, stop looking at your watch. This is gonna, we're going to be just fine. Uh, Acts chapter 4. And if you weren't with us last week, I do need to give you a, a quick update because what we're studying today is, is really the second half of the story that we were looking at last week. And so if you remember from last week, uh, Peter and John are making their way to the temple. This is after Pentecost, and they're going for their ordinary prayers at 3 p.m. when a beggar calls out to them, and this man is lame, and he's been lame from birth. And people walk past him day after day, and he asks them for money, and so he asks Peter and John for money, laid outside the beautiful gate, But instead of giving them money, they give him a new life in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And the man gets up to his feet. This man who's never walked in his life gets up to his feet and he leaps with them into the temple, praising God every step of the way. And people are excited about this. right? We get excited when we see God working. And so a crowd gathers and Peter seizes this opportunity to tell this crowd of Jewish men and women that Jesus Christ is the one that they have been waiting for. He's the one they've been searching for in the scriptures. He's the fulfillment of all the expectations and they need to surrender their lives to him, repent for rejecting him, put their trust in him and they will have life and life everlasting. And people are believing and it's amazing. That's the scene. So we're jumping in midway into this scene. Peter and John are preaching. The lame man is dancing. People are repenting and believing. And what we find now is that the religious leaders are fuming. They're hating this. right? And so we're we're jumping into the scene. They've got some thoughts about what they're witnessing And they're going to make their entrance here in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. So we're going to read verses 1 to 22. I hope you have this open in your Bibles of Acts chapter 4. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge today that, that we're, we're just men and women. Um, Lord, we see through a glass dimly. Every one of us here is tainted by uh, things from our past, things from our present. Lord, all of us come to your word with, with all kinds of sin, distorting our vision, hardening our hearts, 
stuffing our ears. So we just want to say that we cannot see what we need to see unless you open our eyes by your Spirit. We can't hear what we need to hear unless you dig new ears for us. And Lord, our hearts will remain hard unless you soften them. God, I know that. Lord, we know that as a people. And so we just want to plead with you before we go a step further that that in the name of Jesus, would your spirit soften hearts, open eyes, and dig ears for us today, that we would see what we should see. God, bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. And Lord, would you help me now as I, as I try to share what, what I see here and what you've placed here. God, press it into the hearts of your people, I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So, we've got some angry rulers And there's a lot that we could say about this passage. We've got 22 verses we're covering. But I want to zoom in on one theme in particular for our time this morning. And that is this. In this story, we catch an honest glimpse into the challenges of gospel ministry in a hostile world. So that's going to be our focus. Gospel ministry in a hostile world. This is a a very honest portrait of that. And that's very helpful for us because we have been called to do gospel ministry in a hostile world. I want to make sure that we know that because... A lot of the times, I know for myself, and I would suspect for many of you, we can fall into seasons where we begin to believe this notion that evangelism and disciple-making and and all of that that hard stuff where you open your mouth and talk about Jesus, that's for other people. But that's not for me. God's called me just to do my little thing here, quietly, silently, safely. We often fall into that trap. And if you're living in that world and believing that, then this is going to feel like a tremendous waste of time. And you'd be right. It would be a tremendous waste of time. If all we're doing right now is listening to this story so that we can, you know, learn some new things about Peter and John, do a little better in family Bible trivia night next week, write a couple notes in our study Bible, if that's all we're here for, then this is a tremendous waste of time. There's pumpkin pie waiting for us, right? No, we come to the text, as Christians, we come to the text so as to be changed. And here we catch a portrait of doing gospel ministry in a hostile world. The assignment that each and every one of us has been called to. As Jason read from the text, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's our calling. We are disciple makers. If you're here and you're a Christian, this is us. And Peter and John here are setting a great example because they just got caught preaching the gospel in the Jewish temple seven weeks after Jesus was crucified. They're preaching about Jesus in the place where the rulers of this temple are the masterminds behind the crucifixion. There is literally not a more dangerous place on the planet at the time that they preached this sermon than the temple. But here they are, boldly counting the cost and saying, forget it, i got to tell these people about Jesus. That's what we see here. So what do we learn from this example? How do we study this so as to be changed? Well, the first thing that I want to make sure that we see is that as we do gospel ministry in a hospital world, we need to understand that the gospel will be opposed. Now, this is an obvious observation, but I think it's necessary. Think about it. If Peter and John had stood silently next to this healed man, they would not have had any issues. That would have been the end of the story. But they didn't stand silently, did they? They opened their mouths. And when we open our mouths, we get ourselves into trouble. Listen, charity is, is fine. The world loves charity. If you resolve yourself to do charity and keep your mouth shut, you're going to get applauded, you're going to get pats on the back, it's going to be awesome. Silent Christians are safe Christians. And many of us know this because a lot of the times we we slip into that in our fear, right? Silent Christians are safe Christians. We shut our mouths. Peter and John had every opportunity to be silent, safe Christians in this moment. William Plumer observes, No public service, no piety, no benevolence, no humility can exempt God's servants from ill will and wrongdoing in this wicked world. David had his foes. Christ had his murderers. See, as soon as we open our mouths and we tell the world about the truth, about the gospel, we're going to get opposition. We're going to get hostility. And if you ever, you know, sometimes we talk ourselves out of it. I know for myself, sometimes I convince myself that I'm a pretty nice guy. And you just think, you know, those folks are getting opposed for preaching the gospel, but those folks are a little bit prickly to begin with, if we're being honest. I suspect that if I can just, if I'm nice enough, and if I do enough good stuff, that even though I'm telling the world the truth about Jesus and about sin and stuff, they're going to be okay with it, because I'm so nice. If they got to know me, it'd be all right. Not true. Do you know Jesus is nicer than all of us? Do you know Jesus did more good deeds than all of us combined? Do you know Jesus showed more compassion and empathy and mercy than all of us? But when Jesus opened his mouth and told the truth to the world about sin, 
They beat him and they hung him naked on a cross. And the bystanders laughed and cheered as this happened. So how is it that we convince ourselves that we can escape opposition in this world? Jesus told us, remember, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus said, following me, doing gospel ministry in a hostile world means taking up your cross. The thing about crosses is that they're heavy and they're uncomfortable and they're unsafe. Why is it then that for us as as followers of Jesus, whenever we come into seasons of our life as Christians that feel heavy and uncomfortable and unsafe, why is it that our, our, our faith is undermining? We're like, Lord, what, what is going on? We're so disoriented. God, I, I, did you trick me? The world is being mean to me, God. What is happening? This is the call. To take up your cross is a heavy, uncomfortable, unsafe call. Peter, the same Peter who hears in prison, later on in his life, wrote to a church of people just like us. And here's what he told them. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Because he knows you're going to be tempted to be surprised. You're going to be tempted to go, what's going on? Don't be surprised. As though something strange were happening to you. This is the call. Jesus could not have been clearer about this. We follow a crucified Savior. There's going to be opposition to the Gospel. We need to settle that in our minds. It's a hard calling. There is a spiritual enemy. The devil. He hates God. And because you're with God, the devil hates you. The Bible says that the the devil's like a lion prowling about, seeking someone to devour. The Bible says that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. The devil does not like you. He hates you. He hates your family. He hates your neighbors. He hates your coworkers. And so whenever he hears you speaking the truth into this echo chamber of lies that he's working with, whenever he sees you shining the light into this darkness that he's trying to keep people in, whenever he hears those chains of of bondage and sin and addiction beginning to break, his fury comes out and he opposes the gospel. Now, we're with Jesus, so we know how the story ends. But we can't be caught off guard by this opposition. What we see in this story is an excellent example of of honest gospel ministry. Because it's a story of victory, isn't it? They're preaching and thousands of people are coming to Christ. The lame man is is leaping like a deer and praising God, fulfilling the the promises of the Old Testament. This This is a victory story. And yet notice that in this victory story, the heroes, Jesus is the hero, but the key players in this story are spending the night in prison. Notice that in this victory story, they find themselves the next day standing before the Sanhedrin. Seventy of the smartest, most powerful people in the city who are threatening them and intimidating them. That's an honest portrait of gospel ministry. Miraculous healings and unjust imprisonment. Right? Victory with apparent defeat. Uh, holding this tension together. Understanding that, wow, while we're ministering in this world, sometimes our winning looks like losing. And sometimes when we're convinced we're losing, we're actually winning. It's, it's beautiful, it's glorious, but we need to be honest with ourselves. That's what gospel ministry looks like in a hostile world. That's the first thing we see. But thankfully, we also see that the gospel will not be restrained. That's the second thing we learn in this story. So Peter and John, they're pulled out of prison and they're brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 of, again, as I mentioned, the, you know, some of the smartest uh, the most politically powerful, the, the top religious dogs of the city. These are, these are the people in Jerusalem. And they stand before them. In this group, they've got Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the mastermind behind the crucifixion of Jesus. That's intimidating. You've got the, you've got the chief priest, Annas, and you've got the future chief priest. In the, they're all named. These are the bigwigs. You've got all the scribes. These are the students of the Old Testament. These are the guys who know the Bible inside and out. They're all there ready for the Inquisition you got all the political, powerful leaders. It's a, this group's made up of a bunch of Sadducees, which in Judaism, the Sadducees were the, um, were the section of Judaism that were particularly pragmatic and political. 
Um, these were people who were educated and rational and enlightened. They denied the resurrection. They denied the miraculous. And so this is that group within Judaism. And they're looking at Peter and John, and, and they've got this man who's been healed. And remember what the text says, how it describes their view of this? It says they're greatly annoyed. This is something, eh? Peter and John with a healed man. And this group looks in, and they're just, it's just so terribly annoying. Like, oh, I thought we dealt with it. Didn't we, we killed Jesus seven weeks ago, didn't we? Like, why are we having to deal with this? Why is there an uproar in the temple again? Oh, as Martin Lloyd-Jones notes, the gospel is annoying to the natural man. It makes him hate it because it proposes a way to him that seems to him to be utterly contemptible and ridiculous. And isn't that true if you've ever shared the gospel? Oh, God became a man. Oh, 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 a sacrifice to atone for my sins. How terribly annoying. Enough with your fairy tales. That's the response of, of the world. As an aside, isn't it interesting that the devil always works with the same playbook? And one of his go-to plays is intellectual intimidation. Um, so students in your high schools, in your colleges, your universities, isn't it true? Don't you feel this? This intellectual intimidation? You don't actually believe that nonsense, do you? You fool. This is the go-to move. It's the same thing that's happening here with the Sanhedrin. All of these intelligent, well-studied men, these rational men, these miracle-denying men looking at these guys and saying, you, you fools. You, you believe this? You're going to keep proclaiming this? That's one of the devil's go-to moves. You know why he goes to it? Because it works. It, is, it really is something, isn't it, when your classmates are looking at you and they're asking you questions and saying, this is, honestly, you, believe, you read the Bible, you believe this? You know, and always, there's always the smartest guy in the room, and the smartest guy in the room is so certain about, about everything. He, he knows it all. And he looks at you and he can't believe how naive you are that you would believe this, this God. It's intimidating. But understand that even the smartest man on the planet, and I was reflecting on this this week, even the smartest man on the planet understands a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of all that there is to know. I mean, come on, what do you really know? I've rarely been the smartest man in the room. Maybe like, I can count on one hand the number of times I've been the smartest man in the room when I volunteered in the nursery. Um, <laughs> but there's something about it. You know, this, this prideful idea that, oh, I, I, know, I know everything. You know nothing. Think about all the things you could know in the world. Algebra, arithmetic, and geometry, and geography, and, and theology, and languages. And do you know anything about any? You know, like a sliver of a sliver of a sliver. And yet, you would, with your pride and your pomp and your arrogance, you would say, "Oh, I can't believe you believe that nonsense." No, no, that's a that's a go-to move from the world. This intimidation, and we just need to say, "No, I'm not going to be intimidated by you. I'm not intimidated by this. I trust Jesus, not you." I trust his certainty, not yours. You know why? Because he rose from the dead, and I don't think you will. <laughs> I trust him. And so when that comes, you just remember the devil's up to his old tricks, and you remember this story. Remember Peter and John standing before this group of, of powerful men, and they're looking at Peter and John saying, look at these guys, these commoners, these uneducated men. They haven't studied the scriptures like we have. Let's put them through the ringer, boys. So they called them and charged them. This is verse 18. Charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, <clears throat> Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. See, people who have seen the gospel, people who have, who have walked with Jesus, that was the takeaway from the Sanhedrin, Remember? They walked away from these guys and they said, wow, you know, they're not educated men. These are common men, but I think they've been with Jesus. It's like we've, we've heard this kind of boldness, this kind of power before when Jesus stood before us. And these men sound an awful lot like him. They've been with Jesus. They wouldn't have it. They won't be restrained. The gospel won't be restrained. Now, there's been a lot of talk over the last two years about, about when it is that Christians are, need to say no when it is that Christians need to stand up to the authorities that speak to them and say, no, 
You've gone too far. Unfortunately, there's been all kinds of rupture and divide. Even within this room, we could find people who represent different sides of the spectrum. We didn't handle that as well as we could have. We're still trying to rebuild relationships on the other side. But can I say, I'm thankful for this, that no matter where you landed on that spectrum, we all agree that this is a line that none of us will cross. As followers of Jesus Christ, you know, that, the arguments over the last two years was like, well, what about here? And what about here? And people had different answers. But this is a line that every single one of us agrees we will not cross. When the world says, you don't get to talk about Jesus anymore, we say, no. You can tell me to do some things, right? You can put some restrictions on me. They just spent the night in prison. Sure, throw me in prison. That wasn't just, but I'll do it. Bring me before the group and try to intimidate me. Okay, but you can't tell me not to speak about Jesus. I can't follow that order. Because I can't listen to you when God has given me this instruction. They did this. At great cost to their lives, they did this. As we walk through Acts, we're going to see that this prison thing is going to come up a lot. People are going to get stoned to death. People are going to get beaten. People are going to get left for dead. Some of them will die. It's going to be intimidating, frightening, costly. Nevertheless, the church will continue to advance because the gospel will not be restrained. And if and when that day comes for us as a people, I know that we will rise to the challenge. I am sure of it. And it's not because of anything I see in me. I'm frightened by what I see in me. It's not because of what I see in you, that confidence. No, I'm confident of this because of what Jesus promised us. And that leads us to the third lesson we find in this example. The gospel is fueled by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have great confidence, no matter what comes our way. During the Jesus' earthly ministry, while the disciples were still riding with their spiritual training wheels, while they were making all kinds of mistakes and blunders, while they were fearful men, Jesus gave them a warning and a promise. In Luke chapter 1, or chapter 21, beginning in verse 12, Jesus says, But before all of this, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. Sound familiar? And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Pause there. The disciples at this stage in the story are not loving this lesson, right? these These are fearful men. Men who just can't seem to wrap their head around it. And Jesus says, you know, you're going to be standing before kings. But this is a great opportunity for you to bear witness. And they're thinking, no, it's not, Jesus. I, what are, you, are you kidding? Do you, have you seen us? But he goes on to say, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So Jesus says, I'm going to die, and you're going to stand trial but you don't need to be afraid because I'm going to speak through you. I'm going to help you every step of the way. I'm going to give you my spirit and he is going to animate you and nothing's going to stop you. So you don't need to be afraid. Which is exactly what we see in this story. Look at verses 7 to 8 again. And when they had set them in their midst, the Sanhedrin, when they'd set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, he gets ready to speak, But what happens? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, and he came in with boldness and confidence and courage and power. If we are in Christ, if we are His church, indwelt by His Spirit, then He will not leave us without a mouth. Praise God for that. He won't leave us without a mouth. It's frightening. It's intimidating. I don't know what what I'll say. And all night you're thinking about what you'll say. Don't worry. He won't leave you without a mouth. If our ability to witness, if our ability to stand up when the trials come and the persecution comes, if that is dependent upon our intelligence, our IQ, then we are in trouble. I am in trouble. But praise God, it's not. The gospel is not empowered by your intelligence. Nor is it empowered by your courage. It's empowered by the Spirit of God Himself. Therefore, who are we to fear? Where is the smartest guy in the room that we are to fear? I love what the Apostle Paul says. He tells the church in Corinth, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul's saying, God on his worst day is better than man on his best day. And guess what? God doesn't have worse days. 
So relax. They put on a big show, right? We, we're, we're good at putting on a show. You know this. You put on a good show sometimes. Relax. See right through it. God is in you. Now, don't overhear this. Am I suggesting that we should be intellectually lazy? You know, like, praise God, I don't have to read any more books. Books are hard. Close them up. No. No. The Apostle Paul elsewhere tells Timothy to study, to show yourself approved. A, work, a good workman who need not be ashamed. We should do our homework. Uh, Peter himself tells us when he writes the letter to the church, he says, prepare yourself to give a defense for the hope that you have. So we're called to study, we're called to prepare, we're called to work, yes, yes, and yes. But study's not enough. Preparation's not enough. You give me the, the best prepared, the best studied person in the world, and, and you go out there and try to change the world with all of your best ideas, you're going to be eaten alive. Study's not enough. But, but you give me a Christian who is, who is studying to show themselves approved and giving God their very best, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they go out into the world, you're going to flip things upside down. G. Campbell Morgan notes, If one man be threatened by a tribunal, composed of the forces of culture, there's a little hope of him. But if that man be filled with the Holy Spirit, he will challenge the whole company and the victory will be with him. Your main takeaway from this chapter should not be be prepared. Though that's a good lesson. You should be prepared. But that's not the lesson of this chapter. In fact, the main takeaway of this chapter isn't even be courageous. Though we might be tempted to, to press that on here. No, you should be courageous. Absolutely. But that's not the takeaway of this chapter. What's the takeaway? Be filled. Be filled. That makes all the difference in the world. The gospel is fueled by the Holy Spirit. Now I want to move to our, our next lesson. And it's this. The gospel is preached by transformed lives. As wise, as confident, as powerful as this Sanhedrin was, they couldn't find a way to overcome the testimony of the transformed life that stood before them. Look again at verse 14. I love this. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. The Sanhedrin was ready for an intellectual battle. They'd been studying for a lifetime. They couldn't wait to squash these fools. The fisherman and his buddy are here with us after a lifetime of study. Oh, this is going to be great. They're ready for an intellectual fight. They're ready for a political fight. They're like, oh, you think you've rallied a crowd? Oh, 5,000 men in the church. We hold the, the steering wheel of bureaucracy. Right? We know how to run this ship. We know how to turn the tides of the public opinion. We know how to give people what they want and to play upon their fears. We just had your Jesus crucified seven weeks ago and everybody loved him. They're ready for a political fight. They're ready for an intellectual fight. But what they, what they weren't prepared for, what they couldn't solve was the man standing in front of them, the transformed life. They didn't have any way around that. Nothing they can do. I, uh, I mean, if I could be transparent, I, this came up in a conversation this past week. Someone asked me, you know, do you ever have doubts? Because I'm the pastor, right, and I get up here and I preach and I slam, I never slam my fist on the pulpit, I should someday, but I don't. But do you have doubts, pastor? I do. I do have doubts. There are days when I have doubts. And the skeptic's Best question, the skeptic's best attack sounds really convincing, and my memorized response is at best underwhelming. And I, and I think about this is my, I've given my life to this. And is this true? Do I believe this? Is this is this right? I, as a pastor, as someone who studies God's word all the time, I get paid to do it. Yes, I have doubts. But you know what pulls me out of those little spells? The transformed man. You know, I look in the mirror and I see this transformed man and I just think, who is this person? What has God done? I cannot believe it. I know myself better than anyone and I know that this shouldn't be who I am now. But this is who he's made me. And I get up and I have this tremendous privilege of being able to preach and so I get to look out over the congregation and I see the transformed man standing in the congregation and I know who he was and I know who he is. 
And I just marvel. And I see him standing next to the transformed wife, living in the transformed marriage, raising the transformed family. And all of the doubts just disappear. And it's just, it's just garbage. Because there's power in the transformed life. It's something. The Holy Spirit does win men and women into the kingdom with arguments and with sermons. Absolutely He does. Praise God for that. I spend a lot of my time working on them. But it's oftentimes the walking, talking testimony of a transformed life that serves as the final blow to the heart of stone. G. Campbell Morgan says, the church has no argument unless she has a healed man. And the church that is not healing men, remaking them, has no argument for her Christianity. That's the fourth lesson that we learn in this story. Praise God for the transformed lives that are all around us. Fifth, as we minister the gospel in a hostile world, we need to remember that the gospel pulls no punches. Here's a difficult lesson in the text. They're standing before the Sadducees. So the Sanhedrin, as I mentioned, they're mainly made up of Sadducees. This is the political group. This is the pragmatic group of Judaism. These are the guys who denied the resurrection. These are the guys who hate Jesus. And these are the guys who are so opposed to the message of Jesus that they just recently killed Jesus. That's who Peter and John are standing before in this scene. And, and these guys, they call Peter and John before them and they ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? And as I was reflecting on the text this week, I realized they had a, a, an easy opportunity to get out of this. They were presented with a choice. They're looking at the cost. This is, this is intimidating. This is frightening. This might cost me my life. And they're, they're throwing this question. And there is an easy way to, to hit this ball. They could have said, well, you know, he, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob healed this man. That, that's true. He did. And that wouldn't have offended these guys at all. They worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're a little annoyed by the whole healing thing, but whatever. They would have let that slide. In this moment, they had a choice. And we always are confronted with these choices, aren't we? You know, we go out into the world and we just have these moments of decision. Now, I suspect that nobody in this room has stood before the Sanhedrin. But we face choices like it. You know, it's the, it's the newly saved lady and her friends are saying, why don't you party with us like you used to? Right? What's gotten into you? And in that moment, there's an easy way out. Or there's an opportunity to share the hope that she has. It's the, co- it's the employee who's pulled in by an annoyed boss who says, why aren't you wearing that rainbow lapel pin that I issued to the whole team? What's, what's up with you? And in that moment, there's a choice to have a difficult conversation or to try and squeeze out of something. Or the, or the coworker. And your friend, your co-worker is trying to convince you to take some money off the top. It's just, a, it's just a little bit. Why not? It's no problem. And in that moment, there's a choice to tell them why you won't go along with them or just to kind of slip away into the background. All, every day, right, these choices are, we're confronted with them. What are we going to do? And Peter and John here are confronted with the choice. There's an easy way out of this or there's a, a really costly way. And they look with courage into the eyes of these 70 men who are, if you can picture the scene, it's almost like a semicircle. So they're standing here and there's a semicircle of 70 of the most powerful people in the city staring at them. By what power did you do this? They look at them in the eyes and they say, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. That's a bold move. They're saying, hey, you want to know how this happened? It was Jesus. You remember Jesus? Jesus, remember when you tried to kill Jesus? You remember Jesus? Remember how you denied the resurrection, but then Jesus rose again from the dead? It was him. And we're going to tell the world about this, right? That was, that was a bold response to the opportunity that was before them. But if we want to transform the world, then we need to be people of bold responses. We need to resist the urge to, to edit the gospel, to trim off the parts that people don't like. As a friend of mine recently reminded me, clear is kind. Clear is kind. If we're going to preach the gospel in a hostile world, to really preach it, then we need to be clear. 
We need to tell the truth about all of it. And that includes even telling the truth about sin. And isn't that the hardest part? John Owen once wrote, it's to be feared that very many have little knowledge of the main enemy that they carry about them in their bosoms. John Owen's saying, it's frightening that when you go into the world, when you go to your in-laws' place, or you go have extended, you have lunch with your friends, it's frightening how many people in the world are ignorant of the most dangerous thing in their life. You know, they're concerned about their finances, or they're concerned about their marriage, or they're concerned about their employment, or they're concerned about their circumstances, or their health. But how few of them are concerned about the sin in them that is separating them from our holy God, that is damning them to hell, that sin that they need to deal with because one day they're going to stand before God. How few of them have any idea that that's even a problem? They don't even know. It's frightening. Clear is kind. You've got to tell the truth. The Sanhedrin were guilty of killing the king of kings. They needed to hear that because they were going to stand before him one day. It's not very loving to withhold that information from them. You need to know that you're going to stand before Jesus. Your coworker, your neighbor, your parent needs to be confronted with the reality that they are going to stand before our holy God. They need to be told that their sin separates them from this holy God. And we're going to face real temptation to conceal the offensive pieces of the gospel. All of us are going to face that temptation. Especially as the world grows more and more hostile to us. But if we're going to be faithful, then we're going to have to tell the truth. The gospel doesn't pull any punches. But we don't stop here, and this is the beauty of it, because while the gospel doesn't pull any punches, neither does the gospel leave us lying on the mat, right? The gospel lifts us up and heals us and sets us on our feet because, and here's our next lesson, the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. The word gospel literally means good news. It is the good news of what God has done in His Son Jesus Christ to secure our salvation. The good news of what God has done for sinful people like you and like me and like your neighbor and your coworker and your in-law that you're going to eat with. It's the good news of how God saw us in our need and saved us and set us free. It's good news. And Peter looks up at the, the Sanhedrin and he's telling them about Jesus and he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders. Which has become the cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So he uses this imagery of a cornerstone and I'm not a builder. I can't even build Legos. So bear with me. But the cornerstone was in the corner, presumably. And the, the cornerstone, it would, it would set the site for the building. This is the first stone. And so then from here, this is where we're going to build the building. And, and it sets the trajectory for the way we're going to build the building, the direction. But this piece right here, this piece matters. And here he's alluding to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was a psalm that all of these leaders would have memorized when they were children. So Peter's not just jumping into some random building imagery. He's jumping into imagery that's from the Old Testament. And he says, Jesus is the cornerstone that we've been waiting for. And he's the one who sets the site for what God is working, what God is building. And he's the one who sets the trajectory. And you, religious leaders and teachers and worship leaders and political leaders of, of the Jews, you, builders, it was your job to recognize the cornerstone. And you killed him. So how did that happen? But Peter's not just telling them the good news about Jesus. Peter's telling them that Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the gospel. He is the hope of the world. The Apostle Paul will say later, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's what Peter's saying. He says everything, all, everything that we've been waiting for, all of our hopes and aspirations, everything the Old Testament was pointing forward to, you, you plant here, the cornerstone. It's Jesus. And all of that flows out of this. But if you reject Jesus, you lose all of this. The day that the Jews rejected Jesus was the day that Judaism became a dead religion. That's true. Every religion that rejects Jesus is a dead religion. Every worldview that rejects Jesus is a dead worldview. Every solution that you can muster up for what ultimately plagues the world or what ultimately plagues your marriage or what ultimately plagues your, your conscience is a dead end unless it points you to the only true solution who is Jesus. Jesus is the good news. 
Peter declares, there is salvation in no one else. Nobody. There's no other salvation anywhere else. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To reject Jesus is to reject God's plan of salvation for the world. And Peter's just repeating what Jesus taught him. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jumping back to our last point, the gospel doesn't pull any punches. This is a little bit offensive. Some of you are wrestling in your seats as I say this. It feels unkind, unfair to say this. But the gospel tells the truth. And Jesus was clear about this. In love, but with conviction, he looks at the world and he looks at all of the different ideas of of how we can be right with God and all the different ideas of how we can fix ourselves and fix our society and fix the world. And Jesus told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There, There is one door that leads to life. One road that leads to salvation. One gate through which you can enter in. And so therefore, as followers of Jesus and as his ambassadors, woe to us if we don't tell people that truth. But praise God, it's a glorious truth because that door is open. The door is open. The hope of the world is not more education. The hope of your marriage is not more effort. The hope of your addiction is not more discipline. What you ultimately need is not a new set of circumstances or a new lease on life or a new spouse to help you to reach your potential. No, what you need is what Peter needed, is what the Sanhedrin needed, is what I need, is what the entire world needs. You need Jesus Christ, and he is right there for you. As Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes it, what the New Testament tells you to do always, in the first instance, is to forget yourself altogether. To forget all your problems, your temptations, your difficulties, everything else. To forget yourself and look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we find ourselves in a very deep, dark pit. And to get out of this pit is going to be complicated. You know, I was blessed just listening to our brother Jason just sharing that testimony. Sometimes when you're in the bottom of the pit, if I've got to get out of this pit by myself, humanly speaking, better just make my bed in the pit. There's no climbing out of this. There's no, my circumstances are too bleak. My marriage is too broken. I've already, I've lost it all. I can't get out of this. I've tried and tried and failed. I'm deeper down than when I was last time when I tried. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and as God's Word says, stop looking at yourself and stop looking at your circumstances. Here's step one. Look at Jesus. He's the good news. And when you see Him and you behold Him, He gives you all that you need. When you see Him, he, He breaks things inside of you that you didn't even know were binding you. He brings water into the desert. He gives life. Look to Jesus. The Gospel is Jesus. That's what Peter says to the Sanhedrin. And it's what I would say to you today. And it brings us to our conclusion, which is this. The gospel demands a response. Demands a response. There are lots of things that you could say in the world that you know, people are left that you could be indifferent about. right? I could come up here and say, you know, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays are going to have a great year next year. And you could say, maybe, maybe not. Who cares? It really doesn't matter. There's all kinds of news that you're going to hear on any given day that you can and should be indifferent about. In fact, we ought to be indifferent about more things than we are. Fight less on the internet, right? Lots of things to be indifferent about. But this is a message that demands a response. There's one way to be right with God. There is a heaven, there is a hell. There's one way into heaven. And it's through Jesus Christ. So you need to decide. Do you think that's garbage? Do you reject Jesus? Or is this the truth? Because if it's the truth, it changes everything. The religious leaders rejected him. They said, garbage. Too too smart for this. Too educated for this. Nice try. Miracles, resurrection. Get get your healed man out of here. That's annoying. I don't want to see it any longer. They flogged him and they taunted him and they beat him and they hung him on a tree. Little did they know that in their rejection they were actually furthering the plan of God. That as, as they beat him, as they mocked him, as they scorned him, what was happening was that Jesus was bearing in his flesh everything that our sin deserves. He was bearing in himself the sin of the world. And as they crucified him, and as he breathed his last, as he said, it is finished, God's plan to set sinners free, sinners like the Sanhedrin, sinners like you and me, God's plan was being accomplished in that moment. He suffered a death he didn't deserve. 
He paid a debt he didn't owe. So whose death did he die and whose debt did he pay? It was yours. Your death. Your debt. So that if you place your trust in him, he will take your sin and he will remove it from you as far as the east is from the west. He will pay for it in the cross and it will be gone. But if you reject him, then there is no answer for your sin because you're carrying it with you. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. So if you reject Jesus, then that means when you stand before God and you need a way of salvation, there will be none because Jesus is the way of salvation. And you rejected Him. Which means you're condemned in your sin. Which means you'll be sent to hell. Which is the eternal judgment reserved for rebels and sinners according to God's Word. And Richard Baxter was a a Puritan preacher who preached the Gospel time after time and watched as people listened to the Gospel with indifference as if he was announcing the weather. And he reflected, O Lord, that men did but know what everlasting glory and everlasting torments are, would they then hear us as they do? If, if, if we could just, for one second, stop thinking about the pumpkin pie in the baseball game and realize that we are eternal souls and that there is an eternal heaven and that there is an eternal hell and that there is a holy God that we're going to stand before Would we listen? Would we think? Would we just for a moment give ourselves to one thing that eternally matters? Nothing else in the world is is as important as this. Jesus Christ has invited you to find salvation in Him. Heaven and hell stand in the balance. This is an invitation. It demands a response. And the intelligent, powerful, prideful religious leaders, they, they had heard this again and again and again. They'd seen the evidence. They saw Jesus do his miracles. They heard about this resurrection thing. They saw this healed man. They heard the apostles. Ugh, I get it. Leave me alone. I'm not interested in your Jesus. But the church, those men and women in the temple whose lives were transformed, flipped upside down, who watched as these people who preached the good news were carried away to prison, who were counting the cost, thinking about crucified Jesus, those people said in that moment, I have to follow Jesus. Because it's true, therefore, it demands my life. And I might be in prison, and I might be crucified like Jesus, but this is the truth. And 5,000 men were a part of the church at that moment. Thousands of men and women confessed their sin, turned away from their former lives and placed their trust in Jesus. That day, that moment, that's the beauty. You don't have to to say, okay, I guess I should start into my good works program or my trying trying to balance out the books program or trying to earn my way into heaven program. No, in that moment, they looked to Jesus and they were saved. It was costly. Carrying a cross always is. But those people understood that there is no other name by which man can be saved. There's no other way. And today, those Christians who were there in the temple that day, who counted the cost, they are in the presence of their Savior, awaiting their eternal reward. But that prideful, oh-so-smart Sanhedrin are awaiting their terrifying judgment. The gospel demands a response. And it always will, as we do ministry in this hostile world. But it is great to be ambassadors of Jesus. So church, as we conclude, I want to just pray and invite God to to give us all that we need. And I honestly, I truly think the thing that we most need is hearts that are broken for the lost. You know, hearts that see the world the way that Jesus sees the world. So I'm going to ask for that. And if you're here and you're feeling the gospel, the Holy Spirit is calling you to a place of response and you want to put your trust in Jesus, then don't let anything get in your way. You do that right now. You put your trust in Jesus. You talk to the person beside you, in front of you, behind you. Tell them after the service. I'm following Jesus. What's next? Oh, we would love to, we'd love to pray with you. But let's, let's pray together. Gracious God, I thank you for an opportunity as a culture when we can just set aside a weekend to give thanks. And Lord, I know this, this text wasn't a Thanksgiving text per se, but I'm thankful, God. I'm thankful for examples that we can follow. Um, Lord, I'm thankful for the reminder that we're not the first ones that face pushback in the world. God, I'm thankful for the reminder that even though sometimes our circumstances seem bleak, like a night in prison, 
like, like being harassed by the Sanhedrin. There's still victory happening. Lord, we were able to celebrate some victories today that are happening here in this place. Lord, the devil would love to point our eyes to every defeat. Lord, there's lots of stuff to be discouraged about today. Oh, there's an overwhelming amount of things that we could be discouraged about today. And we're inclined to fixate on that list. But thank you that by the power of your spirit, you lift our eyes to see that which we should be grateful for. And that list, we'll never get to the bottom of it. Thank you, God. We are grateful. And I thank you for the opportunity that we have to share the hope that is Christ Jesus with the world. And I pray that you would soften our hearts to love our neighbors, our friends, our family, that we would love them enough that we would be bold and that we would take risks, Lord, that we would put ourselves out there where we might receive pushback as you promised we would. But God, that we would tell them the truth, the glorious truth that there is a life available, that there is forgiveness for sins that is ours in Christ, that there is eternal life that has been purchased for us and is right there for the taking. Lord, woe to us if there are people on our street who don't know that, who have never heard that truth. God, let them hear it from us. God, would you light a fire under us by the power of your Spirit? Not out of guilt, not out of, not out of um, motivation, desiring to, to be better, to do better, all the things that don't ever get us anywhere. But God, by the power of your Spirit, make us more like your Son and give us hearts that just are, are beating for the world. God, that they would come to know you and love you. So God, that's our prayer this Thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for salvation for us and thank you that it's extended to the world. Thank you that there's no one that's outside of your reach. Thank you that there are transformed men and women all around us, God. Thank you that you are working powerfully in our midst and you're working powerfully in the world and that even when we're losing, Lord, we're winning if we're in Christ. God, thank you for all these reminders and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?